Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message of hope through our series, Moses Faithful Servant. We're excited to share another powerful episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This is Pastor Dave Johnson at River's Edge Church. Uh, What I'm trying to do in these podcasts is sort of fill out a little bit more detail from either what I preached or just some more detail. As you know, if you've been a part of River's Edge, we have been talking about Moses now the entire summer and just how amazing and faithful this guy was. Uh, But on top of that, just sort of the ups and downs of his life, his ministry, and what he was doing in the desert. And so one of the things that as I am writing the final sermon is that I'm realizing that I never talked about why the Israelites are wandering for 40 years. And uh, this ends up being a really, really important key piece of uh, the the puzzle here uh, about the whole story, because you have to remember that, that God let the Israelites go, that Moses led them through the desert. They fed them. uh, God fed them with manna, quail, and water from a rock. Um, which we're going to talk a little more about water from the rock this coming Sunday. God fed them, uh, all that. God gave them the law. They rebelled a bunch of times, but God was still with them, and God forgave them. And, you know, maybe a few of them were uh, were sort of released from God's service. But essentially, this trip from Egypt up to Israel does not take 40 years. I mean, you could go walk that trip. Well, I don't know if you can go walk it right now, if if the countries would allow it. But, but let's just say the countries were open and they had a walking tour. You know, you could probably go walk this in a few weeks if you had the right resources. Um, uh, and you didn't walk too much a day just to, to ruin yourself. But you could walk through the Sinai Desert uh, in like a month. No problem. No problem. And you can make it through into Israel as long as you had all the resources, water and all that. So, so why on earth are they wandering for 40 years? And this is a really important story. So in Numbers chapter 13, we're just going to jump right into the text. The, the text says this, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe. Send one of its leaders. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So 12 tribes, send 12 people, a leader from each. That's the, that's the idea. So the Lord commanded Moses and sent them from the desert of Paran. Um, and then it lists who the leaders are and who the men are that, that went to go explore the land. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 16. It says, these are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and onto uh, the hill country. Uh, now, just a quick geography point uh, for Israel, if, you've ever, if you haven't been there, the Negev is this sort of like big desert on its way to the Dead Sea. And um, quick story, I spent the night there one time uh, in a Bedouin village, and I couldn't sleep. And so instead of sleeping before sunrise, I decided to go for a hike. And I saw a really cool desert fox. I got attacked by Bedouin dogs. They actually didn't bite me or anything, but they did these false charges. And uh, quick story, all I remember was 
I, I for some reason I saw a Bear Grylls thing where he was like, you have to get big. And so I picked up rocks and I held them over my head and I got really big and I was like ready to throw rocks at these dogs. And they looked mean and nasty and they did these these charges, but they were false charges. And then they, they ran away. And I decided at that point, this is probably a bad idea. Everyone was sleeping when I left. No one knows where I'm at. Why am I out here? So I turned around and hiked myself back to this Bedouin village where we were going to have breakfast and do camel rides and all that stuff on, on my trip to Israel. So anyways... The Negev is a very important uh, part of the biblical story. It's sort of this buffer land zone on the way to the uh, to Jerusalem. The hill country is sort of like where Jerusalem is. So if you can kind of put a map in your head and picture the Dead Sea and then Jerusalem, the Negev is kind of like right in the middle there. David spends a lot of time there. Um, uh, Jesus uh, might have spent some time there in the water wilderness for 40 uh, days. We're not really entirely sure where that wilderness was. But my point is it's a big piece of the biblical geography, and it's a land that you should know. I always recommend when you're reading the Bible, grab a map or just go to Google and, and type in, if you're not sure, first century, uh, the Negev, um, the Negev Desert, you know, something like that, and it'll show you where that is. So they're coming up from the south and they're going to go to the hill country into the land of Canaan. This is what Moses tells them to do. Um, And then he says, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? (laughs) Just reminds me of a Dwight Schrute question. How's the soil? Is it fertile? Anyways, are there trees in it or not? Do your beast, um, or I'm sorry, do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land? This was the season for the first ripe grapes. That's in parentheses. So they went and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob and toward Leo Hamath. And they went up through the Negev and came back, um, came to Hebron where a bunch of names, um, Ahimim, uh, Shazim, and Talia, the descendants of Anak, lived. That's going to get important in a second. Um, Hebron, Hebron had been built seven years before Zohan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it back on a pole between them, along with pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of the days, they returned from exploring the land. So they went and explored the land, and there's lots of fruit. There is, you know, lots of great stuff and all that. So then they come back to give the report. This is uh, chapter 13 now, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole family, whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. So, like, here's the evidence. We got it right here. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and large. We even saw descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites lived in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. 
Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they're spread, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. Um, they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, and the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. It's a very important editorial note. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes, and we looked the same to them. So, ouch, right? This is a, Moses sent 12 people. This is the land God had been giving them. They've been waiting, I think, probably a year at this point. I, I've got to look back at the chronology of the Exodus. Um, so don't quote me on that. I can't remember exactly what it is. But they go and explore this land, and they say there's Nephilim there. And we can't do it. We can't take them. And so why is this so important? Well, this word Nephilim in the biblical narrative is very uh, weird. There's like thousands and thousands of different ideas on what the Nephilim is and, and, and all that. But it really goes back to Genesis 6. And let me speak for a second on Genesis 6 and then give you the idea of the Nephilim, so that um, we can understand a little bit better the spiritual reality of what's happening with the 12 spies. So it, it goes like this. Genesis 6, we'll just start at the beginning. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, wait, who are they? Time out, pause. Who are the sons of God? Keep that in your mind. Saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans, they had children by them. These were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face, um, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so let's unpack all this. So, some people, obviously, I've got to read people who are much smarter than me on this because when you begin reading texts like this in the Bible, it is hard to navigate like what this all means. So, essentially, I'm going to give you what I believe the Michael Heiser view is. And Michael Heiser is. Um, as a wonderful uh, biblical studies scholar uh, of Old Testament and especially Second Period, Second Temple Period texts, and he's done a lot of study on the Nephilim, and essentially the 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 condensed version is that God does not exist 
as just God. Like we, you might just picture God existing in a space where it's just God, but to the earliest mindset, God would have had something called the divine council. And the divine council would have been uh, these other, what the Hebrew calls Elohim. Elohim are spiritual beings that God has created, and they have purpose. They are eternal with him. And some of these rebelled. Some of these would be called like sons of God, and they found daughters of men to be uh, beautiful, and they had sex with them, and then apparently they had children, and those children were the Nephilim, so this sort of divine human hybrid. Now, the idea is just as humans fell in the garden, they took what was good in their own eyes. The sons of God, this would be a rebellion against Yahweh. And so the sons of God have sex with the daughters of men. And so what are they trying to do? What, what did humans lose in the garden? Well, they lost eternal life right? It says that their days will be numbered and, and that they will die after this sin. And, and now in this Genesis 6 text, what we have is the divine uh, making a hybrid with a human. And when I say divine, I don't mean Yahweh. Uh, I, what I mean is members of his divine council who have rebelled. So, so there's a human physical rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, and then in Genesis chapter 6, there's a spiritual rebellion, which results in these evil creatures called Nephilim, who are giants, who are big, right? And so that sort of should animate your thoughts on the rest of the text when you look at things like, um, the, the, the spies at Canaan, when they went and looked and they were like, well, there's Nephilim there. We can't beat them. And of course, God is sovereign. God is bigger. God is stronger. God has defeated all the powers of Egypt. And it's like, you don't think that he could go defeat a couple of Nephilim. I mean, come on. I mean, what is the story of David and Goliath all about? He's a big guy. Goliath is a huge guy. And and in some of that text, there's some mention of of this guy Enoch and and the whole Nephilim. If you start reading the whole Goliath is his family lineage uh, stories in in uh, first King, or first Samuel, you you begin to see some of that. So like the reality is, it's not like a oh we're gonna go fight giants. The idea is Yahweh's on our side. These other spiritual beings are over there. They're lesser spiritual beings. They're 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 less powerful. And on top of that, they're they've fallen. They're rebelled spiritual beings, and they apparently live in this land. And so, the you know for for the twelve tribes to not trust Yahweh to defeat these beings is just absolutely insane. Because Yahweh's taken them to this point. He's miraculously provided for them. He's defeated Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea. He caused the Red Sea to come back down on Pharaoh's troops. It, you know, like, and you don't think you could beat the Nephilim. I mean, you don't think that God could beat the Nephilim. This just seems crazy. And so if you jump all the way down to Numbers 14, verse 20. So, the Lord eventually forgives these people for this. And it says this, The Lord replied, I have forgiven them 
as you have asked, because Moses, you know, still is interceding for this sinful group of people. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because of my servant Caleb has diff- has had has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land and that he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amicalites and the Canaanites are living in the valley, turn back tomorrow to set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. So if you're following geographically, what the Lord is doing here is he's basically saying, all of those of you who said, nope, we can't do it. Yahweh's not powerful enough. We cannot defeat these people, the, the Nephilim. He sends them back along the route to the Red Sea. Well, where is that? Well, that, that's back to Egypt. Like, he doesn't let them go back into Egypt, but he just kind of has them do this holding pattern in the desert for 40 years. You know, in the, in the average lifespan, this is killing off a generation, allowing a generation to die so that the kids beneath them can see this is what disobedience looks like. We need to trust the Lord. We need to do something different. We need to go and inhabit the land that God is calling us to. You know, I began to think about this, and, you know, we have to honor our parents. Honor your mother and father. It's very important. I've talked about it on Sunday and talk about it again, but but sometimes, um, I mean, just in my own life, there's lessons my kids shouldn't learn from me. You know, I try and be the best example to them that I possibly can, but there's stuff I do in front of them. There's stuff I've said. There's I've made mistakes in front of them, and I'm like, you guys, don't do that. That was dumb of me. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you saw that, and I'm sorry I made that choice in front of you. Would you forgive me? And please don't do the same thing that I did, you know? And and this is kind of that same lesson here. It's like the kids have to wake, go every single day hearing these stories of like, well, yeah, we sent 12 people in, and the food was great. There were tons of grapes. The clusters were huge. This was amazing. But we failed. We told the rest of the Israelites, we poisoned the well. We told the rest of the Israelites that this wasn't good and that and that we can't go into the land because of the Nephilim. And the idea, again, is who's more powerful? Is our God more powerful than these rebellious spiritual beings? I mean, I think the problem of these Israelites and the lesson of the desert was to try to get a people to see life through a supernatural lens. That we don't live a natural life, but a supernatural life, a life where God is with us at all times. And if God has seen us through this, then God will see us through that. If God has seen us through uh, not having any food, if God has seen us through uh, escaping our, our slave masters, then surely he's going to keep his promise and nothing's too big for him. Caleb saw that. 
Caleb absolutely saw that. And he was the one who was raising the banner and saying, no, we need to go get it. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh has said. This is what he's calling us to. And yet they rebelled. They didn't do it. So I guess the way I want to wrap this portion up is really like who's most powerful in your life? Who is, uh, you know, do, do you see things through a supernatural lens or a natural lens? You know, when God is calling you and moving you towards something, do you trust him for that? Or is they're just like, well, the giants are too big on the other side. You know, I don't know how I'll ever do it. And you know what? If you're asking that question, you're right. You won't ever do it. But the Lord working through you can do anything. As Mary said, when the angel Gabriel came to her and told her, hey, you're going to bear the, the son of God. Like you're going to be the mother of the son of God. Like this is a pretty big deal. And, and she's like, oh, I don't get it. But with God, all things are possible. And God wanted the Israelites to have that worldview, that just knee-jerk reaction to say, well, I don't know how we're going to do it, but with God, all things are possible. The problem is when we start living in our own humanity, when we start living in our own fleshiness, we look to ourselves first and we say, well, I can't do it. And if I can't do it, then God can't do it. Rather than looking at God first and saying, well, God can do it. Therefore, I could walk with God and do it with him. Church, today I want to encourage you. The Lord is with you. He wants to walk with you through conquering whatever giants are lay ahead, but not so that you could be some great conqueror. God wants to push you forward in mission. Maybe the giants ahead of you are telling your neighbors about Jesus. Maybe the giants ahead of you are sharing your faith. Maybe the giants ahead of you are discipling your kids or discipling some other people. Maybe the giants ahead of you are, you know that God has called you to ministry or to something. Maybe he wants you to start a prayer group at your work or a Bible study at your work. You know that God is calling you to something and you're not living into it. God is with you. He loves you and wants to walk through whatever field of giants are ahead of you. And he wants to help you with that. So don't let this, don't let the reality of the situation, the reality of the giants on the other side, dictate and define what you believe God can do. Because God can do immeasurably more than you've ever wondered or imagined. I hope you have a great day, and I hope you join us Sundays at 10 a.m. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.